Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition, a delicious range of sumptuously smooth dark chocolate. You're listening to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. I'm Rachel Flaherty. On today's podcast, I'll be talking to New York-based Irish journalist Jenny McQuail about her documentary Straight Curve, which explores body image and the fashion and media industry leaders challenging society's unrealistic and dangerous standards of beauty. Later, we'll bring you all the details of the Dublin Arts and Human Rights Festival, which takes place in September. Hosted by Smashing Times Theatre Company and Frontline Defenders, it will celebrate the work of human rights defenders around the world, both past and present. Bernice Harrison talks to Mary Moynihan of Smashing Times and John Morgan, a lawyer and member of the Basque Pyrenees Freedom Trails Association, about that. Irish filmmaker Jenny McQuail is the force behind Straight Curve, redefining body image, a new documentary examining attitudes to female body image and fashion and the media, which was released on iTunes in Ireland earlier this summer. The film powerfully touches on issues like fat acceptance, eating disorders, self-love and female empowerment, and stars the likes of Ishka Lawrence, Nicola Griffin and Tess Holliday. I spoke to Jenny recently about the documentary and her views on what can be done to overcome the obstacles responsible for what she calls a global body image crisis among women and girls. Hi, Jenny. Uh, thank you so much for talking to us. Your documentary called Straight Curve. Would you mind explaining what the documentary is about? Sure. Well, thanks for, for having me on today. And like you say, the documentary is called Straight Curve, Redefining Body Image. And it is a film that basically looks at the people that are fighting back against society's really dangerous and toxic beauty standards that is telling girls and women everywhere that we should all be this super thin white woman in order to be kind of accepted in this world in order to be considered beautiful. And the the documentary looks at the people who are trying to reshape the fashion industry and the media to be more inclusive of what women really look like as, you know, we walk down the street and what you look like and I look like and our mothers look like. And um, yeah, that's that's kind of the, the premise behind the film. And Jenny, yourself, you grew up in Drogheda and County Louth. What made you want to make a documentary like this? Um, I think, you know, the, the issue of, of female body image is, personal to me and it's personal to all of the women in my life. I think, you know, this, I say that this film is for anybody who has ever looked in the mirror and felt not so good about themselves. You know, I think that as women and even men, we, we really suffer from this notion that we should look a certain way. And that is being perpetuated by the media and by 
the fashion industry and I think I wanted to do something about that. And I really wanted to have this conversation on a larger scale because I don't think we're really talking about the dangerous impact of only seeing one type of body out there in advertising and on social media and, and really the impact it's having on our young girls. And that was a really important part of the film for me was, was the teenage girls telling us how this imagery is making them feel and, and what the, the damage we're doing to them. Because actually, when I watched the documentary, the first opening few minutes I found a bit upsetting because it was young young girls, teenagers, and they were asked about how they felt about themselves. And they were saying things like they felt disgusting, they felt worthless, they felt alone, they looked in the mirror and they only could see what was wrong. Why do you think young girls feel like this, especially so young? I mean, I think that, you know, we learn in the film that our brain processes images 60,000 times faster than words. So if we think about the world that we currently live in, there's just imagery everywhere. There's advertising everywhere. You know, we walk down the street and there's, you know, there's posters on bus stops. We open up a magazine, we open up a newspaper, we watch TV, and then we go on social media. You know, we can't escape the images that are out there in the world. And if all we see is one type of body and one type of woman, then that's what young girls think that they should look like. And, and we're sending them a very wrong and dangerous message of if you do not look this way, if you are not a size zero, then you don't belong. And then you're not accepted. And you're, you know, you're never going to achieve your dreams. And you're never going to get that job that you wanted or that partner that you wanted. And I think, you know, it doesn't, this imagery doesn't represent what women really look like. And it makes us feel invisible and unworthy. And that's really dangerous. Because one of the teenagers said that they felt the pressure to be thin was coming from everywhere. But from doing this documentary, do you think there's one specific place it's coming from in particular? Or is everyone responsible for how women are feeling about themselves? I think through researching this film, it became really obvious to me that the very center and root cause of this is the fashion industry. And then this imagery is then being perpetuated in, in the media. So I think for, for me, the film has to be told through the lens of the fashion industry and in the media, because I truly believe that if real change is to happen, then the fashion industry has to start using women of different sizes, of different shapes, of different colors, ages, abilities. We need to start seeing those women on the runways. We need to start seeing those women in ad campaigns. We need to start seeing those women in, in, on TV. And once we do, then it's going to paint a very different picture. And, and women everywhere and girls will start to feel a little bit more represented. And, and I think that is is starting to happen and it feels encouraging to me that the fashion industry is stepping up and in turn that the media is now starting to use those different images of women and I think that's what's going to impact society. It does seem as if it is happening that there are more diverse models out there. Although even looking at the documentary and what, what I see in social media, that seems to be happening almost from the models themselves making themselves a brand on, say, Instagram and then the fashion industry hiring them. Do you think there's still mm-hmm. a reluctance from the fashion industry to use, you know, different size models? There seems to be progress, but it seems to be quite slow. Right. I would agree with that. I think the progress absolutely isn't fast enough. 
Um, you know, I started making this film five years ago, and I will say that the change has happened. A change has happened. We're seeing more diversity in imagery. You know, I live in New York City, and just walking down the street, looking at billboards and looking at the windows of storefronts, and I'm starting to see women of color and women of different sizes. And, and, and so, you know, it, it is happening, and that feels really good to me, but it's not fast enough. And you are right in saying that a lot of women are kind of building their own platforms. And then a lot of companies and a lot of brands are being accused of kind of jumping on the bandwagon uh, and not really caring about the issues. But I think that we are getting to a point where it's no longer okay to just use one type of woman and one type of body. And I think that, you know, social media has really helped with that because it's given people a platform to say enough is enough. And I'm not going to spend my money in your store if you're only going to show this one type of body because my body does not look like that. So I think that brands and companies are definitely starting to listen and are definitely starting to diversify. Um, I don't necessarily think that high fashion ever will because, you know, by nature, it's exclusionary and it's meant to be for the elite. And they create this kind of sense of, you know, only a certain percentage of people can really belong in this high fashion circle. But I don't really necessarily think that that impacts women on a day-to-day basis because we're not wearing those clothes. So it doesn't really matter that that high fashion may not catch on. I think what really matters is that the high street stores and stores that we're all shopping in, you know, and, and the clothes that we all wear, I think that's what's important, that that has to change. And Jenny, you, you grew up in Ireland. Do you think women in Ireland have as big an issue with, with body image and that as, as you've seen in the US or are there differences? I think absolutely. I think that this issue is a global issue and in different countries it, it kind of manifests in a different way. But, you know, in England and in Ireland and in, you know, the States and Australia, these countries, <laughs> we absolutely share this same imagery, the same com- like kind of same commercial ads that are being put out there. And we have the same issues about our bodies. You know, I talked to my friends back in Ireland, talked to my friends over here. There's no difference. But I think that we've learned, you know, I'm in my in my late 30s. And I think we've learned to kind of bury these feelings about our bodies because we've just suffered with it for so long that we've kind of forgotten that actually we could do something about this or actually we could feel better about ourselves because I think, you know, we've been so accustomed to seeing only one type of body. And then we're, we have decided, you know, years ago that, well, we don't look like that. So we'll just, you know, forget about it and, and move on. But the reality is we don't have to accept that anymore. And the reality is that, you know, I want to feel good about myself. I want to feel like I belong in society and that I'm worthy, right? And I think that we all deserve to feel that way about about our bodies. And I think that that hopefully is starting to happen. And I feel that's kind of what the point of my film was, was really to show women and girls that people like them are out there doing this great work and that they're not alone. And, you know, we're not alone in our struggles. And, and hearing other people share their kind of personal struggles with their bodies is really helpful. I noticed as well during the documentary, there was um, like in Ireland at the moment, the average dress size, I think, is around 14, 16. 
Um, and there was one model speaking and she, I'm guessing she was around a size, size 14. She, fantastic looking woman. And she was saying that um, she had someone accuse her of promoting obesity, um, who sounded like was in the fashion industry. But no one ever once showed any concern when she said she was very, very thin and felt unwell and felt ill. How are you going to change the minds of people who, a size 14, if someone's uh, accusing someone of being unhealthy at that, how do you change the minds of people who are like that? Or, or what should people do to try and promote you know, more acceptance of people of how they are? I think this is a really great question and one of the biggest obstacles that I think we face in this conversation is this ridiculous idea that, you know, if you have a larger body, you must be unhealthy, right? There's this notion that plus size promotes obesity and it's absolutely false and it's very, very dangerous. And I think we have to start talking about that in a very real way. And I think in the film, we had, we did a deep dive into the health issues, right? And we look at kind of how, we are measuring health and this concept of measuring BMI is such an outdated measuring tool and it should not be used because it only takes into consideration your height and your weight. It doesn't count muscle. It doesn't count any of that. And I think, you know, we, we also look at the, the issues of, of having more fat in your body can actually help you fight disease. And these are things that we're not talking about, right? We're, and I really fully believe that we're not talking about it because at the bottom of all of this is just very, very real bias and stigma. And I think in the States in particular, the worst thing that you can be is fat. And that's crazy. Like, how did we get to a point where the worst thing that you could possibly be is fat? It's not that you could have a disease or that you could be ill. It's that you would be fat. So and th- that is coming from this place of society just not being accepting of larger people. And then it's masked in this concern over health. And I think that that needs to stop because, like you just pointed out in the film, we hear people are concerned about someone's health when they're larger, but they don't care when they're thin and actually on death's door. You know, and I think that just in itself really paints the picture. This conversation is not about concern over health at all. We're just masking it as such. It's really about bias and stigma. True. And one of the more disturbing parts on the film as well, I thought there was a younger girl. I'm not sure what age she was. She was, uh, I think, one of the daughters of the models who was speaking about, um, she looked probably around nine or ten, who was speaking about that her friend had told her she was fat and she, you know, she was just saying this quite innocently. So, you know, I was, where do you think we need to start in changing people's attitudes? Obviously, children are saying it to each other quite young, but that's coming from somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I think, well, two things. First of all, I think that the negative connotations attached to the word fat need to be eliminated. You know, this idea that if you, the worst insult you could kind of throw at someone is to say that they're fat, right? So if you think about mean kids in the playground, It's like, oh, you're fat, you know, and it's very, very hurtful. But the reality is, I think there's a lot of women out there now who are reclaiming that word. And there's this fat acceptance movement happening where women are saying, yes, I am fat. And, you know, I'm fat, but I also work out. And I'm fat, but I also eat salads. I'm fat, but I also have a boyfriend. You know, I'm fat, but I also have a job. And I think that that's going to be a really powerful moment because, 
seeing kind of taking the negative power away from that word and reclaiming it is going to help our next generation of, of young girls because I feel like that when it's not an insult anymore, it won't hurt as, as badly. And then secondly, I think that young girls are learning this in the home. And that's, you know, one of the biggest things for me is if you're a parent, it's just so important that you don't stand in front of a mirror and pick yourself apart and then have your young daughter or son see you and hear you because, you know, those kids are looking at their mother thinking that their mother is the most beautiful person in the world. And they don't understand when the mom starts to say things like, oh, but I'm fat, I'm fat, because the child doesn't see that. But the child will learn that. And then the child can, you know, in some ways attach it to themselves and then also attach it to others. So I think it's really, really important that we're kind to ourselves, particularly around younger people who are just picking this up and, and kind of don't, they're not really understanding it. So they're just kind of repeating what they're hearing. True. Another thing that I find uh, I've always kind of struggled with the fashion industry. They refer to plus size and plus size seems to refer to anyone that's over a size 10. Would that be correct? Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. weird to tell someone, I think, who's a size 12 that you're not a normal size. You know what I mean? How how the mm-hmm. all the terminology, even the, in referring to the different models, I think is still weird. I don't know if that can be changed you know, things are changing, but it's it's still quite weird when you refer to someone who's very healthy, has the right amount of body fat and all the rest, but yet they're being referred to as bigger than normal. Can you see things like that changing or, or is there always going to be distinctions between different sizes in, in the fashion industry? I think in the fashion industry specifically itself, those sizes and those kind of categories are indicators purely for... Um, Booking models, for example, so, you know, they, if a brand wants to do an ad campaign and they want to book a model that's a certain size, they use the terminology. Or if, you know, there's, there's kind of different segments in stores or different fashion lines produce different ranges of clothing. So I, I don't think that terminology was ever meant to be adapted and put onto the regular woman, which is unfortunately what has happened. So I think that that was meant to be a term that was solely meant to be used to kind of categorize different sections of models within the industry itself. But as I said, being applied to women in general is where it becomes a problem. And I think that some women love the term. Some women are embracing the whole plus size term and they, they love it. Other women don't. And I think it needs to become a world where we don't have labels as such, unless you want to call yourself something. So you can choose your own label. And I think, what is starting to happen over here in the industry is that agencies, modeling agencies, for example, just have all women on their board from a size zero to a size 20 and above, and there's no labels. And I think that is going to be the future, hopefully. And I think that's kind of the direction it has to move in for sure. Do you think that we have better role models to look up to now? Like years ago, say, for example, just someone you know people looked up to Kate Moss as being the perfect figure and she was real thin now a lot of young girls would look at someone like say Kim Kardashian who's regarded as more curvy or actually even in your film I suppose they were doing BMIs and she was above 25 are people being able to understand their own self-worth with the mentors and the people that they're looking up to who are out there now or do we need to do more for more diverse people to be out there 
I think a bit of both. I think that we have come a long way from when I was growing up. I mean, I don't know what you think about this, but I don't remember seeing anyone that was a different kind of shape or size or color for that matter, right? Or ability. That, you know, (laughs) we only had, like you said, Kate Moss is a, a good example. And I definitely didn't see kind of cellulite or, you know, belly rolls or any of that in, in advertising. There was a lot of Photoshop and there still is, but that is moving. And I think, you know, there, there are so many new role models out there for girls. And I don't know if one of the most encouraging aspects of all of this is that, you know, the, the women in my film are incredible role models in lots of different ways. They all have their own issues that they promote. And they all have their own platforms that people can follow. And, you know, Iskra Lawrence is a great example. She's in the film. She has over 4 million followers on Instagram. And she posts every single day. She does not Photoshop her imagery. She works for Aerie, which is an American Eagle uh, brand. And they have stopped Photoshopping all of their ads. So, you know, it, we're starting to see women how they really look. So we're starting to see cellulite and belly rolls and, and you know, women without a thigh gap. And I think that that is really, really important. And I, I actually went to some university campuses with Iskra in the States and the impact she has on people is incredible. Like I couldn't believe that the people, you know, there was people, girls coming up to her just like crying and saying like, thank you so much for making me feel like I can be accepted. And there was boys, like teenage boys coming up to her saying, like, thank you so much for what you've done for my girlfriend. My girlfriend is a different person now because she feels like she it's okay to like her body the way that it is. And, you know, that that was so moving to me. And, and I think that that is what this conversation is all about. It's all about seeking out people who do look a little bit more like you so that you can feel a little bit better about yourself on a daily basis. Yeah, and Ishka, for, for anyone who doesn't know her, she's probably, I'm guessing, around a size 14. She's slim, healthy-looking woman. If you think about it, when I was looking at her on, on the film, it's like it's it's a bit insane that she's someone who stands out as a model when she's a model. You know, it shouldn't really matter if she's if her sizing is slightly different to other models. But um, I think her honesty appeals to people as well. She speaks quite openly about the struggles she's had with accepting herself and... And um, which is what I was talking about earlier as well, that a lot of models, they're using social media to promote, uh, you know, accepting your own body and valuing your own self-worth, which um, which is, yeah. a lot of people give out about Instagram. But I think it can do a lot of good as well or any social media. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's something I tend to talk about a lot is the power of social media for good. And like you say, I know that there's a lot wrong with it and that, you know, there's a lot of negativity associated with it. But the reality of the situation is social media is here to stay and we can't do anything about that. So we have to accept that our kids are going to be on social media. And instead of kind of pretending that that's not true and burying our head in the sand, I think what we can do is then learn how to harness these new tools for good. You know, we can learn how to harness these tools for a positive impact. And I think that's what we need to be having a conversation about is how we can use social media for good. And what it does is give people a voice that we didn't have 10 years ago. And I can tell you for sure that different companies and brands and magazines, et cetera, have hired people 
to specifically sit on social media and read all of the comments and report those comments back to the to the you know owner of the company. Well, so, so consumers we, have power. Yes, we have power that we never had before, and we have a direct line to the powers that be. And I think if we start thinking about this, we can tell brands what we like to see. So it's really good to tell people when they're doing a good job. But we can also say, hey, I didn't like how you did this or make suggestions like it would be better if you could use a more diverse range of women in this ad or how about you use women of color or something like that. And people are listening. And so that is an incredible tool that we just perhaps we're not aware of. But, you know, that's that's something that I talk about a lot. And then as we talked about earlier, just having different types of role models available to you on Instagram is for me, once I started making this film, I started diversifying my feed and just, you know, on the daily scroll, because, you know, that's what we do. If you start to see bodies that are a little bit more reflective of your own, so more, you know, little, you know, more cellulite in a bikini or whatever, it's just inherently going to affect you in a more positive way. And it has done that for me. And that's one of the tips that I give to people is to diversify your feed and you will see the difference it makes just in your own self-worth. And Jenny, finally, um, there's just one thing I noticed in the film that some of the experts spoke about that children are weighed in schools and get BMI report cards in schools. Mm -hmm. Um, That doesn't happen here in Ireland at the moment. It seemed to be the objective was to to reduce obesity when they become adults. Do you think that's Mm -hmm. something that works? Because I know it's been talked about here in Ireland before. Personally, horrifies me the thought of it. But do, from what no, you've seen yeah. doing this research in this film, is it something that's worked for for the schools there? No, absolutely not. This idea of body shaming a nine year old is obscene. What? Yeah, I mean, there's no logic behind it. I mean, whatsoever. Particularly because the measure and the tool that you're, they're using is outdated. BMI, like I said earlier, is not was meant to be a tool that was applied to mass groups of people, not individuals. So when you use this tool on an eight-year-old, a nine-year-old, and basically then classify them at that age, what we are doing is promoting disordered eating. What we are doing is effectively, possibly giving this kid a future eating disorder or body dysmorphia. And the dangers of those diseases are absolutely something that cannot be, be ignored. I think, you know, when we talk about body image, the, we cannot, you know, avoid talking about eating disorders because it is such a rampant thing with girls and boys. And I think there's more and more people suffering on a daily basis across the world with eating disorders now. And measuring nine-year-old kids and telling them that they're fat is only going to make that worse. I agree completely. Jenny, thank you so much for talking to us and wish you all the best with the film. Thank you. And uh, it's on iTunes next. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. The Irish Times Women's Podcast is brought to you by Green and Black's Velvet Edition. Sumptuously smooth, dark chocolate. This September, Smashing Times and Frontline Defenders will host the Dublin Arts and Human Rights Festival to showcase and highlight the extraordinary work of human rights defenders, past and present, and the role of the arts and artists in promoting human rights today. Mary Moynihan, director of Smashing Times, and John Morgan, a lawyer and member of the Basque Pyrenees Freedom Trails Association, came into studio to speak to Bernice Harrison about it all. 
the Dublin Arts and Human Rights Festival. Now we have arts festivals. We're not sure to them. I think we've probably had human rights, you know, symposiums and conferences and so on. But this is a mix of the two. How did that come about? Um, well, Smashing Times uh, Theatre and Film Company have been in existence since 1991. And from the very beginning, we've always been interested in using the arts to promote human rights. So the company started off, first of all, interested in telling women's stories. And then we started working in Northern Ireland, where we were using the arts to promote peace building and reconciliation. And we did that for many, many years. And because of that work, we were invited to go and work in Europe with different organisations. So arts organisations, trade unions, universities, a broad range of organisations, but all the time using the arts to explore issues that communities were facing. So, for example, in Europe, we were looking at the refugee crisis um, and also looking at how countries across Europe can link up to explore the issues that we're facing. And I suppose that human rights is always there. So we've been thinking a long time about the idea of creating a festival where we can bring together the arts and human rights, but bring together Irish organisations as well as organisations, arts organisations and human rights organisations across Europe. Mm. So we're delighted to have a number of uh, European and international speakers as well as Irish Mm. speakers. And John, when did you come on board with this then? So I've had an involvement, I guess, in historic memory projects for about 10 or 12 years. And I find myself at one stage at a performance of The Woman is Present. and uh, That was a Smashing Times production. Exactly, exactly. And it was uh, it was extremely interesting insofar as the guys had, had arranged um, a Q&A afterwards. And so we, from the audience, essentially people were chatting about this and the other stories to do with women of courage during World War Two. And I, I, I asked and talked a little bit to the guys about um, about women in escape lines specifically, which was... A, Tell um, me about escape lines. Yeah, What's escape that? lines are a little known uh, form of resistance during World War Two. It was effectively non-military resistance. We're all used to the books and the stories and the films and so on about military resistance. But these were people who specifically aided, sheltered, rescued uh, people who needed to get out of Allied, sorry, Nazi-occupied Europe. So, for example, downed Allied airmen, people who had been left behind after Dunkirk, uh, individuals who were trying to avoid the uh, mandatory work programme that would have seen them sent to Germany and obviously Jewish families and individuals. So they would shelter them, provide them with food, uh, tend to their injuries, um, arrange uh, forged documents, courier them down. For example, if you take Belgium or Holland or France, courier them down through France and generally across the Pyrenees, which meant, you know, in often often hazardous journeys across uh, the Pyrenees. So when we were at the Smashing Times performance, we spoke about that and uh, I've just kept in touch then with Mary and Frida and and that's resulted in, in me taking part in, in, uh, in the festival, mm-hmm. uh, speaking uh, about the same subject. And uh, I... Or, or, uh, organised a, a memorial group or a commemorative group in the Basque Country region of Spain with a friend who is formerly from Waterford, living out there for 35 years. And we've created the Basque Pyrenees Freedom Trails Association. And uh, we uh, organised an event last year where we brought back the families of one of the escape lines and those that they helped over the mountains all those years ago. And we walked in their footsteps over two days and, and brought people back to where their forefathers would have arrived in very different circumstances all those years ago. Uh, we were followed by a film company at the time and so it's great that, that film will be premiered mm. in Ireland at the Arts and Human mm. Rights Festival. Because there's a, huge range of, there's a huge range of events and activities. I, I mean, that's what's notable about this is over 10 days. And what, what struck me uh, looking at it was that, you know, I suppose when I, when I first saw the title, you know, Arts and Human Rights Festival, 
maybe I was thinking of quite a narrow view of human rights, you know. So now I'm hearing about the World War II resistance. So, so that's different. So that's what you're bringing, I think. Yes. Um, this is a very interesting question. What are human rights? Hmm. And we would see, I would see human rights as basically looking after the dignity and humanity of people. Mm. And that can cover a broad range of issues. So, for example, in Ireland, we're very much affected by homelessness, which is a human right. We're very much affected by, uh, you know, access to a proper uh, health system, which is a human right. Um, And then, you know, you can have the wider issues of, uh, you know, oppression and a lack of freedom. And we find that especially our European partners are... You know, the theatre organisations will talk to us about the, the repression that they're, that's happening in their own countries, whether it's Serbia, whether it's Poland. So I suppose the rise of the extreme right and what's happening in terms of free speech. So it covers a broad range of, range of issues. And what's really interesting is because John talked about historical memory, mm. you know, as artists, as an artist, I'm very interested in the idea of particularly women's stories from history. And particularly women, I'm interested in the stories of strong women. I don't mean a physical strength, but it's an inner resilience. And women who use that inner resilience to stand up for the rights of others. And I think the fantastic thing about any festival, I think, is that if you engage with it, if you go along to anything, you learn something. So, you know, and something that maybe was obscure to you that you didn't know. So I see that you're going to be celebrating Catherine Ann McCarthy, Mary Cummins and Catherine Crean. Now, I, I, I know Mary. I've heard of Mary Cummins, obviously. Catherine Ann McCarthy, Catherine Crean. I'm sorry. You know, like, isn't that terrible? Or is it? Well, that's, I mean, that's... It's is that perfect, the point well, of these festivals, yes, really? Yes, but it's perfectly normal as well. I mean, mm. I think the reality is many of us haven't uh, haven't heard of these people. But I think the exciting part of this is about telling stories of people who are hugely inspirational Irish women. And I think there is something there for Irish people generally, Irish women, particularly young Irish mm. women, to realise there are people of huge resilience and strength uh, who did remarkable things at the time. So, to Could con- you tell me a little bit about, sure. about these women? Catherine Ann McCarthy is from um, West Cork, a place called Drumalig. Uh, she had um, joined a convent uh, and had moved to France um, in and around the First World War. And she was based in, in northern France in a small town in Normandy called Bethune. Um, during the war, or sorry, after the war, she went to America for a time and came back um, and the Second World War broke out. She found herself very much drawn to the necessity to stand up for those who uh, were finding themselves in a situation where their country had been occupied uh, and she got involved in the resistance. Um, she was involved with a particular resistance group called the Musée de l'Homme and she also became involved in uh, escape line work. Um, she was, as many people were in those circumstances, she was betrayed and was arrested and interrogated and imprisoned in the notorious Ravensbrück um, women's concentration camp, predominantly for women. Uh, her family talk about stories that she told them about walking barefoot through uh, Berlin, uh, being marched through Berlin, being taken to Ravensbrück. Uh, she was chosen for death four times, um, mostly due to how... Uh, emaciated she was, um, four times chosen by a person whose job was to do that and they were called the Huntsman and four times she avoided that fate. Um, she was remarkably um, mentally tough um, and brought, eventually was released and eventually recovered and eventually went back to uh, northern France, ultimately retired and came home to live in Cork uh, and lived out her life in Cork. Interestingly, of course, many of the people who were in the escape lines and who were arrested um, were in Ravensbrück at the same time. She wouldn't have known 
that um, her countrywoman, Catherine Crean, was also there. Ah. Catherine Crean mm. was a helper for the Comet Escape Line, which mm. was one of the three biggest um, escape line networks they would have been called at the time she was living in Brussels. Um, she got involved with the Comet Line. Um, we would love to know a little bit more more about her ourselves insofar as there's a certain amount of information we know uh, if anybody out there knows of a Catherine oh. Crean who was in Belgium during World War II we mm. would love to hear from them Catherine got involved with the Comet Line and Catherine equally was arrested and went to Ravensbrück mm. where sadly uh, she died she didn't uh, survive she died shortly before liberation which is always the most tragic story when you read that it was just so close um, in 2014 with a group of people um, we arranged to um, put a plaque up in the Irish College in Paris to celebrate mm. all the Irish men and women who in the words of the plaque served the cause of the liberation of France and we, we read out the names of all of those 50 plus people we know who were involved in some way or another and I had the privilege of reading out Catherine Crean's name mm. and the reason I did it particularly was because I made a promise to a friend of hers who is a very formidable 96-year-old Belgian woman called Nadine Dumont who was also uh, a courier on Comet. She ended up in Ravensbrook and she was with uh, Nadine, uh, sorry, Nadine was with Catherine shortly before the end and they've been good friends and Nadine, when she spoke to me about Catherine and that's how I learned about her, um, Nadine, uh, even 75 years later, broke down as she described mm-hmm. those last moments with mm-hmm. Catherine. When Catherine had asked her to comb her hair, she talked about her beautiful red hair mm-hmm. and she said she didn't have the physical strength to do that. And then she smiled because she said, my ignorance as a 19 or 20 year old about about geography is that I would often at the time uh, when we were working together, um, I would describe or introduce Catherine as British. Um. And she said Catherine was a very small woman, but she drew herself up to her maximum height and said, I am Irish. Mm. So she was very proud of her Irishness. Great stories, fantastic uh, stories. There are those two That most people, I don't feel so bad, frankly, about not knowing that, you know, (laughs) uh, because I think a lot of people wouldn't. Now, there's obviously obviously going to be a huge historical component to the festival, but you're going to be talking to current human rights defenders. Isn't that true? So... um, You've got people from the LGBTI community um, and that there's going to be a big talk in the Science Gallery, isn't, isn't that true? Yes, we've got uh, several events happening that mm. day. We were running the, the... That's September the 29th, isn't that it? Yes, yes, in the Science Gallery. And because we run the, the, the festival in partnership with Frontline Defenders, so that day in particular, there's a whole range of workshops happening. And people can go onto our website, www.smashingtimes.ie, to see... Um, the different workshops. So they cover the LGBTQI. Uh, they cover, um, we're going to be looking at the traveller issue. Uh, one of the speakers that we have, and it's actually linking back to these stories that we were just talking about, is um, we're bringing Sean Binder from Cork in. And he was a rescue diver and a trained maritime search and rescue um, volunteer. And he, he volunteered for the civilian rescue operations on land and sea in Greece in 2018. And, you know, despite his continued cooperation with the authorities, he was arrested for his humanitarian work and he spent over 100 days in pre-trial detention. Now, that trial is still hanging over him. And Sean is coming to speak because we're very interested in this idea of linking the stories from the past and, you know, telling those stories like John has talked about, telling them online, telling them in performance, telling them in film, but then also getting people to talk about what are the relevance of those stories for today. And I feel they're particularly relevant. And it's great to have Sean talking because those stories were about 
solidarity amongst European nations where people from the women from Ireland, from France, from Belgium, from Poland, they all got together to work for each other. And that solidarity was what I think originally started the whole idea of the European Union to stand up for peace, to stand up for freedom, but to stand together. And I think that's really important today with what is happening with the refugee crisis. And we really need to be talking about not closing our borders, not standing by with our arms folded. And I think that was a quote by Samuel Beckett. He said, you couldn't just stand there with your arms folded while people are dying, trying to escape and trying to find freedom. And Sean is there to talk about that. So and we find that it particularly engages with young people, um, but people of all ages, because you hear these wonderful stories for the past and realise, you know, it's still happening today mm. and we need to be telling these stories. And, and you say about young people, do you think is going to come to the festival? I mean, obviously now that, you you know, it, it's over 10 days, there are very many events. Who who do you think is going to be attracted? Well, first of all, Smashing Times has a very large following okay. for an arts organisation. And so, for example, on the first two days, we will have 400 young people from schools across Dublin who will be coming to the events in the mornings. Um, and then after that, uh, we have schools coming to other events throughout the 10 days, but it's then open to the public. So, you know, it would be our followers, people who follow Frontline Defenders. Frontline are an extraordinary organisation. They are probably the largest organisation, one of the largest organisations in the world who are providing uh, support for human rights defenders today who are at the front line. And for example, Frontline will be bringing over, one I think it's 1,000 human rights defenders for a large uh, private event that they hold to support them. But the idea of the festival came out to try and bring these stories to light and to get people talking about human rights. And part of the festival is going to, there's going to be music? There's music, there's poetry slam, there's... Um, there's lots of different things. There's, now, the uh, one thing, of course, I'm going to book the minute I leave this studio, and that is Silent by Pat Kinnevan. Yes. Oh, yes. So that's that's <laughs> a big star attraction yes. now in your festival. Yes. That's going to be at Samuel Beck Theatre on September the 20th. Uh, so tell me tell me a little bit about that. And why is that part of this festival? Um, well, Pat Kinnevan, to me, is one of the most exciting and extraordinary performers and theatre makers that we have in Ireland and across Europe. And his work is extraordinary. His work is um, you will come and you will laugh and you will cry. You will be emotionally engaged. And Pat tells these stories that go from the very ordinary to the extraordinary. And so, for example, Silent is the story of an ordinary man from Cork who um, watches his brother take his own life from suicide because he's gay, because of the oppression he's experienced, and then goes on, the, the main character goes on to lose his own mind. So it's about exploring issues to do with mental health. He eventually becomes homeless. You're looking at the homeless issue, um, but you're looking at it from a personal story, a human being story of what it is to experience prejudice in Ireland, what it is to see that and how that destroys your loved ones, um, looking at homelessness and looking at uh, mental health. And we would see those two issues as really important. So again, we're having a post-show discussion after the performance to talk about these issues. And I just think Pat is an amazing performer. And I think that's really important that you, as an artist, we're very interested in making art, but art has to engage people on an emotional level and not just tell the stories. Um, and artists who do that need to be celebrated. And again, you know, I don't think every artist has to say I'm making my work for human rights, but I think a lot of us are drawn to what are issues that are concerned about the world we're living in. And that's what makes us, I think, naturally drawn mm. to human rights issues. And it's just, for me, it's very much saying, let's talk about what human rights are. It's, it's you know, dare I say it's politics with a small p, but it is about getting people to talk about what it is to be human and 
what are these human relationships and what are our, ident- our identities and how do we treat each other? And for me, that's what theatre is about. And I think that's what human rights is about. It's about the dignity of the human spirit and relationships between human beings. So, you know, finally, what, what would you hope that, you know, obviously, you're, you know, there's, there's an element, I think, maybe in sort of very themed festivals that you could be speaking to the converted, that only people who are particularly engaged with what you're talking about will come. So how do you break out of that? Yeah, how do you break out of that? Well, in Smashing Times, we've been doing that for a long time Mm. because we were originally set up. I worked at the Focus Theatre in Dublin with the brilliant Deirdre O'Connell and I loved working at Focus Theatre. I worked there for 10 years and it was brilliant. But I recognised at a certain point there's only certain types of audiences coming to see this work. And it is elitist. No, it was back then in 1991. And I grew up in, you know, a working class community. I'm from Coolock originally. And I never met anybody from my community who went to who went to the theatre. And I said, we have to do something about this. So that's where Smashing Times came from. We said, we're, we literally got on a bus at the beginning and went out to different communities to bring the arts out to those communities. And then eventually, not you can't go out and preach at communities. We like very much to work with communities, to engage communities. So I'm like a... Uh, you know, a, a conduit, I suppose, where it's very much about engaging the audience then in making art. And we would say that's very important. So Smashing Hands have, have this outreach approach to the work and bringing it out into communities. And in my experience, I also work at, in university level with young people. Young people are hungry for these stories. Young people love these stories. I think it was brilliant with, you know, the abortion campaign, the way we saw so many young people engaged, campaigning, wanting to bring art into, you know, the 21st century. And I find when I tell these stories to young people, they just love them. They love the stories of the women of 1916. They love the World War II stories. They are interested in stories of people. Again, it goes back to this idea of people who care about the society they live in and wanting to change that. So I do think there's an audience out there. We'd love people to come. We'd love people to put the word out. Tell everybody you know. Um, You know, I just discovered recently, like the second day of the festival is the 20th of September. And that's this day they're having for this World Climate Oh, yeah. uh, action mm-hmm. day where there's a call going out to everybody tell all your workmates tell your you know mm. your all the schools to come out so there's probably going to be a huge <laughs> uh, march in Dublin on the 20th yeah. as well while our festival is going well, of course, on climate is, climate is, is human such right. an important that's such an important issue. yeah, yeah. Absolutely. and we're, we're delighted with that and yeah. we would say to everyone Go on the march for climate justice <laughs> and, then and come to the sit Smashing down and go to a show. Now, <laughs> go to just, a show. Finally, uh, please again give out the website that people can find out more information because that's that's kind of important. So, okay, it's um, www.smashingtimes.ie and you'll find all the information there. Excellent. Look, thank you very much for coming into studio. Thank you very much. And that's it for today. Thanks to our guests Mary Moynihan, John Morgan, and Jenny McQuayle. Remember, you can subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. We are on Spotify, Acast and all good podcast apps. If you want to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook at IT Women's Podcasts or email us on thewomenspodcasts at irishtimes.com. The Women's Podcast is produced by Roshan Ingle and Jennifer Ryan with JJ Fernan on sound. I'm Rachel Flaherty and until next time, thanks for listening. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. 